Welcome to The Ordinary Show, an ordinary podcast with ordinary guests for ordinary people. I'm your host, Cardell Morgan, and my guest today is Dathan Sturgis, a good, good friend of mine, my brother. I've been trying to get him on the show for a while, scheduling just kind of messed up. He is originally from Haynesville, Louisiana, but currently he resides in Seattle, uh, which is not far from where I live. And I'm so happy to ha- have him on the show. Uh, we met each other when we were in college. We were both in Louisiana Tech. And he just he was, he was always a really good friend. And he has a really interesting career. And I, I, want, I want to talk about it. And so uh, welcome to the show, Debbie. I'm glad to be here. It took us long enough. Yeah, yeah, it did. It did. Uh, is there anything about yourself that I missed that you want to add? No, no. I'm glad you told about my country roots. Uh from the small town of Haynesville, Louisiana. We born and raised, uh, like you said, we met at Louisiana Tech and we've had a friendship that spanned over a decade now. And um, it's so great to have him near um, Seattle. Um, COVID has kept us apart, but as these restrictions lift, I hope to hang out again soon. Yeah, yeah, of course. So I'm going to jump right into it. Um, one reason I want to... Having a show, not only because you're an interesting person, but because of your career field. You have a really interesting career field that I had that I never heard of till I met you, or not till I met you, but till after you became, because I, I knew you before you became. Mm-hmm. Um, you got into this, but you're a physician's assistant. Yeah, a physician assistant. Yes, a physician's assistant is not a medical doctor, but they're not a nurse either. They're a completely different thing in the medical field, completely, right? Yes. Can you can you explain to me what a physician assistant is? Yeah, yeah. So so a physician assistant or a PA as we are called um, is a medical provider. So we diagnose, we treat, we educate patients, we also assist in surgeries, we order and interpret labs. So we are not a doctor, we are not uh, nurse practitioners, but we are part of the healthcare team as a part of the advanced practice providers, which um, is a field that's usually made up of PAs, nurse practitioners, certified registered nurse anesthetists. But um, we provide patient care input and help fill the access gaps that exist um, with there being a physician shortage um, in this country. So uh, it is a, it's a worthwhile field, and I'm so glad to be going on 13 years now. Absolutely good. So what's the biggest difference between a physician assistant and a doctor? Um, well, the, really the, the level of schooling um, for one part. So I can kind of break it down a little bit. So um, for MD, you go to um, a four-year university, get a degree, uh-huh. and then you go to medical school for four more years. From there, you decide, you know, what specialty you'd like to go in. For example, if you want to go into family medicine, and so you apply to different residency programs, which can last for anywhere from three to five years. So during that time, you're getting specialized training in, in your field of choice. Um, from there, too, you can go and do fellowship training if you want to get hyper-specialized. So it's uh, the amount of time and also the amount of uh, debt you accrue as well. And then the degree that you get at the end of a MD is a clinical doctorate degree, which is a medical doctorate degree. Um, PAs is a shorter track to practice medicine. You need a four-year university um, degree. And then you go into PA school, which lasts anywhere from 24 months up to about three years. Um, My program was two and a half years. And in that, you kind of get the meat and potatoes of medicine. That's what I call it. Um, So if you kind of like envision a plate, PA school is the meat and potatoes. But if you go to medical school, you get the science, too. So they learn a lot of the histology, biochem, genetics, things like that. But PAs learn how to practice medicine. And so you go one year of didactics, which is classroom. And then you spend the remainder of your time going through different rotations um, in the different areas of medicine, um, usually from one to two months at a time. And from there, when we graduate, we are generalists, which means that we can practice in whatever field that we would like to. So when we take our um, national certifying exam, we're certified as a PA and you can go work in any field of medicine that you like. Um, 
I have done work in uh, mostly chronic disease management, like internal medicine and primary care, currently in family medicine. However, if I wanted to go do dermatology tomorrow, I could. So that's that's one of the other differences um, between the two. We The goal is the same, patient care, high quality patient care to get good patient outcomes. Um, but we our terminal degree is a master's degree mm-hmm. and not that clinical doctorate. And um, we don't, like I said, we don't go to school as long. And, the, and there is a pay difference too, of course, because they spend so much time specializing and, and going through that process that they are gonna have a higher salary. Um, but when you look at it too, you have to look at, okay, the salary versus the debt as well. So I went to school for a total of six and a half years to become a PA versus um, over a decade. But it's it's whatever your personal preference is. And we all get along. We are collaborative. And like I said, the end goal is to provide that good patient care. Okay. So, well, I guess, again, let me ask for a little bit more explanation. Yeah. You talk about how people go into specialization when they become a doctor, right? Mm-hmm. But what's the what's, what would be the main difference between you and say like a general practitioner for for like a small town doctor? What's the difference between you and that person? Um, basically, what I just uh, said, like the training and the title. Um, okay. Like I said, a lot of times PAs are specialized too because we work in the same field for us forever. Like I said, I am uh, an internal medicine person, primary care, chronic diseases like hypertension, diabetes. Um, however, like I said, if I did want to go do like orthopedics or dermatology, I would just do some on the job training and, and get that training. But the MD or the DO is, is specialized. So they, they do a, a residency in that. And that's what they're learning their craft. They're learning the tricks of the trade. And that's what they practice in. They, if they want to change, they have to go back and do another residency. And again, though, so you have to be committed and know what, um, especially it is that you you want to see yourself working in for your career. Okay. Do, do you have patients? Or, oh. or have you ever had patients? Oh yeah, yeah. No, that's that's we do have patients. So mm-hmm. I, I go. I have patients every week. So I'm in academic medicine now. So I don't mm-hmm. practice every day. But PAs they have their own panel of patients. Some PAs own clinics. Um, so yeah, you, you have your own panel of patients. So yeah, you see patients. That's mainly what you do all the time. So you're a provider. So you're in there seeing, you know, anywhere from probably 15 to 20 patients a day, probably more. Some people argue more because it depends on your shifts and how you're, how everything's set up. But yeah, you are, it's direct patient care. Okay. How would you compare a PA to a nurse? So it's two different things. So uh, a nurse uh, is not a direct patient care provider. So, but nurses are, are pivotal part of the healthcare team. So mm-hmm. they, you know, the PAs and the docs will come up with patient care plans, and the nurses help implement those. Um, mm-hmm. Nurses are also, you know, they keep up with health maintenance, and and they also help. A lot of them in managerial roles will help run the clinics and keep it, keep us all in line as well. But that's the difference between a PA and a nurse. So what I think you mean is a PA and a nurse practitioner. Mm. Yeah. And so nurse practitioners and PAs are both advanced practice providers. So the PA is trained in the medical model. So we are usually trained as part of medical schools. And nurses are trained in the nursing model, which is just a different way of training, but still the result is the same. Like you're still providing direct patient care. You can write prescriptions, you can assist in surgeries, um, you can have your own clinics. Um, but that that there's no real palpable difference between the uh, PA and NP um, besides the, how they're trained for the most part and some laws that governs like some of the practices, but but that that'll be kind of getting into the minutia, but but yeah, yeah, we all we all do the same things in the, in that regard of trying to get that those good patient outcomes. Okay, well, I think my next question: How did you discover this career field? So it's it's I so I'm new. I was new to it too, just like you said. You found out about it when I actually completed the program. So I was on the track to be a, a doctor because that's all I knew. And you know, from my small town, I I didn't know. PAs or I had never heard of it. So when I was in college, I decided between my um, junior and senior year that I was going to uh, take a break, like like take a gap year between 
going to medical school and uh, and graduating college because I was like, okay, I'm kind of I don't have much money, I don't have the resources. Everyone around me was taking all these review courses, two thousand dollars a pop. I didn't have that. We I didn't grow up, you know, or have that right. kind of access. So I was like, okay, so I'm going to work a year. I'm going to teach, work a year, save my money, and then that's what we're going to do. But then I talked to my cousin who who uh, was in his residency at the time, and he kind of started. I hate to say it, he was like, you know, you should look into the business side of medicine, maybe. He was like, that's who runs the show. And, you know, so I, I listened to him, I respect him. And so I was like, okay, maybe I'll do public health. So I went to UNC Chapel Hill between my junior and senior year to do some research there. And then I was like, no, I do want direct patient care. So I was like, okay, back to the original plan. But one of uh, my friends who was in, uh, uh, I took a lot of classes with, and we're still good friends today. And she was in uh, Alpha Kappa Alpha, and I'm in Alpha Phi Alpha. She had gotten to PA school, and she told me about it. And I was like, this is what I want to do. You know, I was like, okay, two and a half years of more of school. Growing up, I have not. I, I was very conscious of money as well. And I was like, okay, I don't have to accrue a lot of debt either, and I can get into the workforce quick and recoup money, pay off my loans and live a good life, you know? So I honestly um, applied to one school I got in and I was a PA at age 23. I've been a PA since I've been 23 years old. And I had a talk with myself and I asked myself, you know, is it about the work you want to do or is it about the title? Mm. And, and the work, the, the, it was the work that I wanted to do. So that's why I didn't go to med school and I went to PA school. It helped me, like I said, financially. Um, you you live a great life. You make good money, and you you can kind of have a little bit more control of your schedule if you want to. As a PA, I only work forty hours a week, but you can work as much as you want, you know. But I knew, you know, somebody like me. I like to travel. I, I want to see the world. Like I said, I had never really gotten out of Louisiana for the most part. So I was like, you know, when I get to become a professional, I want to enjoy the fruits of my labor. So that also helped me pick that um, the PA route too. Um, and I also really loved that I didn't have to always commit to one specialty, even though that's what most of us do, and I have done that. But it does feel good to know that, hey, if I do want to try something new, I can. Okay. Um, so what is it like? So like I said, I didn't even know about the curriculum until you became a, a PA, right? Mm -hmm. So because, one, this is already a little known, or at least the people like me. Right? Yeah, it was back then. Who grew up in small towns. Yeah. What is it like being a black person in that field? What is it like being a black PA? Oh, it, it, honestly, it feels good. Yeah. Only because, and, and I'll say it's it's twofold. So it feels good because you are, or you have increased representation, right? So when I see patients from underserved communities or other black or brown patients, they like to see me. They want to see me. Um, we can connect culturally, and it just makes people feel more at ease. And at home, you know, we have a lot of institutional oppression and institutional racism that that people carry with them every day. You know, historical trauma. So sometimes people don't trust people that don't look like them. So it's always good to walk into a room and see that big smile on someone's face, knowing that okay, we if above anything we have a connection and that we have share some of the same experiences. And then on the flip side too, you know. Not to brag, but my patients love me because I come genuinely, genuine. You know, I bring that country boy spirit, no matter where I'm at. And, you know, I talk to you like you're my aunt, my grandma, my mom. Um, so it doesn't matter, you know, the race, the gender, the, the socioeconomic status. I usually find some type of connection with with the patient. And, and if they don't want to see me, I'm fine with that, too. You know, I want the patient to get what they want. But it, it, it's great being a black man in medicine and what i'm trying to do is keep opening doors for others to join we are very underrepresented um less than four or three percent um in medicine in general uh, especially in pa education and um medicine medical education as well so it is a badge i carry proudly and and you know like i said that increased representation is is what we seek 
um, more justice in medicine, more equity, especially regarding health equity and health outcomes. And then just demonstrating the beauty of diversity and then also implement those inclusive practices as well. So that's, you know, that's that's a badge I do carry and wear with with great pride and honor. Okay, good. There is a and I I'm bad at remembering organizations, but there is an organization of uh, a national black PA organization, right? Yes, National Society of Black PAs. It's, it's fairly new. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Are you a member? I am. I am good. a member. Okay. Good. So. You touched on it, and I want to go into it a little bit more with you. What are the barriers to Black people entering the medical field? Not just PA, but just the medical field in general. What are the barriers to them entering that? And what are some of the ways that we can overcome them? Well, some of the barriers are just ingrained into our society and our existence right now, you know. So systemic racism, systemic oppression, biases, stereotype threat, um, beliefs that people hold, uh, practices that have benefited others that at the expense of of the under those are the things that we have to dismantle and overcome. Um, you know, we need to diversify the faculty and the gatekeepers. The the you know that's why I, I'm a professor at a at a um, college right now that uh, works for the PA program because we have to have seats at the table because we are the gatekeepers. If we keep that door closed, we will never diversify our the ranks of PA education. Um, and you know, and specifically with black PAs, because you know, we fall to the status quo, we have false beliefs that have to be basically deconstructed. And so that's what the work is being done now. We're trying to become more anti-racist, which you know is a trope but you have to have action behind it. And I would like to say that at my institution, we are putting practices and actions behind it. We have to get away from um, point systems and assigning uh, arbitrary value to certain things um, and look at holistic admissions, for example, like distance travel. And what that means is what else do they bring in their life? What have they overcome? Are they working 30 hours a week while also maintaining a 3.4 GPA? Are they on um, Pell Grants? What, how do they get through school? What uh, leadership do they have? What involvement? So those sorts of things that are the people that you want as your clinical providers because you want someone who is able to connect with the community, able to communicate effectively, but also have the wherewithal um, to, to, to finish the curriculum as well. So it's, we're looking for a more well-rounded person rather than just someone who's book smart. And that um, a lot of times it gets a lot of us out of the running because there are other external things that are going on rather than I have to, I have all my time to, to make straight A's, if you get what I'm saying. So, no, yeah. So just looking at the value and the distance traveled of people and having a concerted um, belief and, 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 and uh, a MO that says, you know what, I, I am going to diversify this field and, and my program is a destination program for people that are from underrepresented backgrounds, you know, and that when that gets out and people hear about that, too, you get more people applying. And then again, just for your question, you said earlier about me being a black PA, that representation, looking on the website, seeing people that look like you on the website, you know, to say that, OK, maybe I do. I can come here. I belong here. You know, so a lot of times you you can't imagine something for yourself if you've never seen it for yourself, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah I, um, I've i had a few people on the podcast who are from what we talked about was their career field. I, I had somebody in the tech industry. Um, I had Eric on, you know, he, he's a mechanical engineer. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's something that, that they echo is that, like, you have to be able to see yourself. Yeah, you do. In the role, right? Because like, if you don't see yourself, you don't know it's even a possibility. So I, I think that's 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 a good statement that you made. But the the fact that you're not the only one saying, I think it um stands to how powerful that that is. That like just seeing someone do something mm -hmm. is a powerful motivator for people. Yes, I agree. Um, so we 
when you talk about the barriers, right? So you need a well-rounded people in medicine. You're not looking for just people who, who are book smart, right? Mm-hmm. But so say I'm um I'm a kid at Grambling, or I'm a kid at Tech, or I'm a kid at I don't know Fisk or wherever, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm and I'm interested in medicine. What is your advice? You know, mentor. If you can get a mentor. With with and I see what I, I've noticed here lately is that I'm so glad that people are so unapologetically asking for what they want, uh, especially leveraging like Instagram and Twitter and things like that. So I recently just I I hadn't really been an active person on Instagram or Twitter, but I just like kind of became more active and so I can be out there and have people reach out to me, and and people have been doing that. And you know, especially now with Zoom and things like that, we've been talking. It's really if you don't have a mentor trying to seek a mentor and not being afraid to reach out to lots of people because someone's going to take the bait and they're going to help you, you know, um, trying not to do it on your own because when there are people that will come before you that, that want to help you, you know, um, so that, that's my biggest advice. And don't get, don't give up on a dream. If you have a dream and something you want to accomplish, don't let anything deter you. Like you might don't, it might not happen on a timeline you want it to happen. Langston Hughes said, what becomes of a dream deferred? That's, you know, I do not want people to defer their dreams because of these barriers, like, you know, that we are presented with, because that's, those are the things that actually keep us as the have-nots, you know? And so reaching out to people who know resources, who know maybe different sources of um, of income that can help with your tuition. I tell you, I, I my daddy told me a, a while back when I was a kid, he was like, you know, all they can say is no, no, never hurt anybody. And I thought about that. And I, you know, when I got to PA school, like I said, I was like, okay, here we go. This, this costs money. I got to live in this city by myself. I don't have as much money. What can I do? So I, I went to um, a state school and I wrote everyone that sat on their board of supervisors and, and I asked them for a scholarship and it took one person one person wrote me back and said, I got you. I'm going to pay your tuition while you're in school. And he did. I had a scholarship to pay my tuition for the entirety of my PA school because I reached out. I sent my, I made me a little resume. I wrote a letter. And out of all the people I sent it to, one person responded back and it was in the affirmative. That's all you need. Yep. Just one. That's it. That's- that's a great story, actually. I think um, there. Are, I, I, this might sound weird to say, but there are so many people in the world. Like, I don't think people understand like, how many people exist, right? Right. <laughs> if you just put yourself out there to somebody, somebody's willing to help you. Yeah, right. Yeah, and like all the mentoring I do, I do free of charge. There's a lot of people out here that actually charge for this type of stuff. But I talk to people. I will check over their personal statements. I read, I, you know, all this stuff because I don't want to put any type of barrier in front of them. As long as I got the bandwidth, I try to do what I can to help people. And I must say, we got a good success rate. Just about everybody that I work with actually get into PA school and finish PA school. So. You know, I, I, I just, you know, you just got to pay it forward. Um, yeah. Your gift is in, in heaven or wherever you believe in. You know, I'm comfortable. I don't need y'all's money. You know, I yeah. just I just want to help and make sure you break the curse of the, the, you know, the generational curses and help build wealth for your family down the road. That's all I want to do is create that kind of vehicle for people. I, uh, I, I've run, I have run into a few people where... And this is sad to say, I've run into a few people where people who were trying to mentor them mm-hmm. wanted things from them. Sometimes it was money. Sometimes it was stuff that wasn't money, right? Mm-hmm. I feel like that's not mentoring someone. That's taking advantage of someone. Because if you're mentoring someone, you're just passing information on. You're just like helping them become, you know, fulfill with who they want to be, right? Yeah. If, if you want something for somebody out of it, that's just an exchange. Yeah, yeah. That's just a service. So, mm-hmm. so we might would just rebrand it as I'm providing you a service. I'm not really mentoring you because you paying. If you stop paying me, then I'm gonna cut off my service. <laughs> right. But um, I, but I'm not knocking it. But you know, that's just not the. That's not how I operate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think we touched on it um, a little bit earlier, but I want to 
go into it because it's kind of like the, the elephant in the room, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because you're, you're in, in the medical field, you're black, right? So mm-hmm. I, t- I just think it's something that we should touch on, right? Oh, I'm, I'm unapologetic. You can ask anything. <laughs> Racism in the um, medical field. I, um, one, I mean, we can always talk about like the mortality rate for black women who are giving birth. Mm-hmm. That's all. That's one thing that's already like conversation enough. But a few years ago, I read an article where they talked to people who had actually graduated from medical school. These are not people in medical school. These are not people in undergraduate. These are doctors. They have doctorates, right? Mm-hmm. They asked them. I forget. I don't know how they asked them. They didn't go, go to an article, but basically questioning people about, you know, treating black people and a, a large percentage of these doctors that they talked to said that they thought black people physically had a lower tolerance uh-huh. yeah. or a higher tolerance for pain. Yeah. Those are doctors I know. Yeah. And so why is it that so much racism exists in the medical field? That's and it's supposed to be feel that's supposed to help people. Well, I mean, come on, racism permeates every fiber and fabric that what w- you know weaves America together. It's, it's ingrained in our tapestry, and so medicine is medicine. And the reason why that people hold those beliefs is because they were taught that medicine. Uh, we're trying to get away from the racist origins of medicine, but I mean, let's think back. Okay, so the father of gynecology use his slaves to experiment on and test these these services and procedures that now you know are commonplace without anesthesia because someone randomly said that oh well you know black people don't experience pain um the way white people do you know and people go with that um, there used to be a, a, a field of medicine called phrenology or craniology, whereby the shape of someone's head, it determined their superiority. So all this stuff was used to subjugate people and to, to, to um, make it right that, oh, I'm treating these people um, as subhuman because, you know what, medicine supports that they are subhuman. And it is taught that, you know, they use race as a biologic construct. And race is social. Race is made up. Mm-hmm. So, and that's where the error comes in because people will view that as something genetic, something biologic. It's really just the expression of your melanocytes. You know, my melanocytes just uh, express a little bit more than yours. Race is subjective. It depends on even where you are. At the turn of the century, Italian Americans and Irish Americans were not considered white. If I go, if I go to some other country. I might not even be considered black. You know, it's in the eye of the beholders that the, whatever the history is at that time. And that's something we have to deconstruct. We have to remove race-based medicine from our education. And, and that is going to be, you know, uh, a task because medicine has been, you know, it's centuries. And so now, you know, we're just now starting to try to deconstruct and decolonize medicine. It's going to take a while, but it's, it's having conversations like this, you bringing up, this me when we teaching we're we're teaching from a social determinants of health standpoint and not race as a biology standpoint and creating a new breed of providers that can you know when someone says that like no that's not true but these stereotypes you know just like in society it permeates into medicine too and people hold these beliefs and patients suffer from it mm-hmm. yes have you ever come across that in your time in the medical field? I will say that, you know, when I was in school, I was taught that, you know, this is how you treat blood pressure. This is how you treat it for non-black people. This is how you treat it for black people. And it was just a matter of fact thing, right? Mm-hmm. Based on race, using it erroneously as a bi- biology. And I used to treat patients like that until I knew better. Yeah, And I knew... Now, I knew better only because I went to get a Ph.D. in health promotion, health education, where I learned about the social determinants of health, the public health. And, you know, learned about race and sociology and anthropology and things like that. And so then I made a mission to make sure I tell everybody. And I will tell you, I, I was treated. So I have hypertension mm-hmm. and they used to say start black people with a calcium channel blocker. Okay, so I was starting on calcium channel blocker 
do you know what happened to me? I ended up in the hospital with congestive heart failure because I had fluid overload. I had the side effects there. My heart rate, my heart pumping ability got to about 51%. And if you get below 50%, that's heart failure. And I know it was because I was black that that's why they, they, they gave that to me. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I, I got off the mess and I recovered. I switched to, you know, a thiazide. Well, it's not telling you that, but a thiazide and, and, lysine, and an ACE inhibitor. Um, but that is usually one of the first options for the non-black, you know, algorithm. But the option for the black algorithm is casting channel blocker. But we're not all monolithic. That's why I use it as an example, because we can't use it as, as genetic or biologic because um I'm black. I was prescribed that, and I had a horrible major side effect to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah so. You know, I don't know if how you even how how you would even phrase this, right? But I read something a while back, and they were saying that the reason why the opioid crisis didn't hit the black community so hard mm-hmm. was because doctors were not prescribing the drugs to black patients because they think the black people, you know, oh, they ignore their pain, right? And so that's why but they were over-prescribing them to white patients. Yeah. Black people were getting like, oh, you'll be fine. Don't worry about it, right? And then white people were like, oh, no, you're in any kind of pain. Here's an overly high dose of medicine to help you deal with that. Yeah, I've read a lot of things about that too, and I think it is merit to that because just based mm-hmm. on what you just brought up about, you know, kind of race-based medicine, the race-based approach to pain treatment, it, it only makes sense, right? Um, and so I do think that those that that those biased practices, you know, shielded um, a lot of the black community from the opioid crisis. We are touched by the opioid crisis, though. Don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. um, but you know it is more so, you know, expressed or represented in one one population over the other. Um, with that, you know, you 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 have to look at it from also a sociology standpoint as well. So and how they brand things, and this is how stereotyping, racism, and and bias, you know. So I'm a provider. I'm going to treat my patients. And I'm gonna get get them to good health. However, I also noticed like the branding of things, like this is an opioid epidemic, right? Or opioid crisis. I'm I'm sorry, opioid crisis. But the crack was an epidemic. Crack was an epidemic. You you get what I'm saying? And it's based on the population that was most affected. And crack was criminalized so bad that people actually, they, you know, they went to jail and things like that. But it's not the the rules are not the same um, mm-hmm. when it comes to this. Not comparing apples for apples because everybody, it's a addiction is a disease and addiction needs to be treated. I bring that up to see, show that those who were also on addicted to crack needed treatment. That it didn't need to be a criminalization. It needed to be a treatment where public health and medicine stepped up and provided the care that's needed, the same care that we are doing for the opioid crisis. There are many grants, there are many resources, many facilities that treat this, and rightfully so, it needs to be treated. But as we go forward in these different types of controlled substance uh, crises present itself, I think we just should take a page of how we have reacted to this crisis Mm-hmm. In all other crises as well, to make it a disease rather than a criminal offense. Right. No, I, you're absolutely right. Um, I was speaking with someone, and they were talking about, you know, um, it's basically the same thing you said. Like, oh, they treated the opioid crisis one way, and they treated the crack problem a different way, and the uh, there was three. There was me and uh, two other people talking, and one person was very upset about it. it was like, oh, so what? You, they, they were like, oh, you want people to be treated the way those people treated? And the, the thing was that no, we don't want necessarily people who have a problem to be treated one way. It's just that why weren't black people when the crack epidemic was going on? Why weren't they treated the way people are being treated now? Yeah, and and when you know better, you do better, right? So right. these are the type of conversations we have to have. It's not a slight at anybody. It's just a reality. This this happened. I can't, I can't make it not have happened, but I think it's a lessons learned in that, like I said, that as we go forward, 
we treat all these things in the manner in which they should be treated as an addiction, as an illness and, and help people. That's that's the bottom line. We have to help people. It's not to to shun them or criminalize them. And you have to also look at why are people on these different types of drugs? You know, mm -hmm. everybody has a reason why they started these. It could be over prescription from from uh, providers, you know, for the opioid thing. It could be someone who just has a lot going on in life, a lot of social things that keep them down, who don't know how to how to seek solace in counseling or don't have the resources to go to counseling. So they self-medicate. We have to find these things out so we can treat people effect effectively and, you know, so that's all I'm saying. We we yeah. have to really dig and, and see how we can best help people and get them their addiction under control. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, you're right. Uh, there's, um, I, I like this more, just developing this more nuanced view of what is a health problem versus what's like a, what people you say is like a personality problem, right? People just like, oh, it's just, that's just them, right? And it's for, and now people are like, well, what's going on? What are the issues in their life that are pushing them towards this, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm appreciative of that development in medicine. Yeah. And like I said, we, 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 we're here. I think we're heading in the right direction. We just need people that speak truth to power, you know, mm -hmm. about these and can also look at medicine outside of medicine, look at all the other contributors to medicine. Like, like I say, history is a big part of medicine, sociology, anthropology, psychology, all these things meld into health outcomes. Yeah. Well, we talked about that big elephant, right? We talked about race and, and medicine, which could be an episode unto itself. And, yeah, it could be. But so since I got you here, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to focus on one issue too much. Um, the next thing is the other elephant in the room, right? Um, we've all heard about the struggles of healthcare workers during the pandemic. Um, can you give us like an inside perspective on COVID in the healthcare? Professional, I've heard that people say it, right? But I don't yeah. know. I I'm not a healthcare professional. So yeah. you tell me, what was it like when COVID was like in full effect? I mean, I know it's starting to wane a little bit. We got the vaccine. But what was it like when it was like going on? So first, I gotta take my hat off to all my colleagues because I wasn't in the trenches. I do academic medicine and I practice half a day a week. So I have to really take my hat off to all of my colleagues because they were on the front line putting their bodies in danger, you know, to treat everyone during this time. It was an influx of patients and the, the healthcare system was very stressed because people were sick, people were dying on patients and providers. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, you know, I just really heard from my, from my friends. So I had the privacy privileges. I had the privilege of not even practicing during that time. I was able to be at home and teaching on the computer, you know? Yeah. So, um, but people were putting their bodies on the line. I, it was, it was stressful. There became also a time where, you know, there were not a lot of jobs because people were losing revenue um, because of, you know, people just being sick, people can't work. And, you know, I, I had colleagues who, you know, packed their bags, traveled to New York city to like the epicenters of a lot of these, um, the outbreaks of COVID and, mm -hmm. and to Harlem, to NYC, to LA, to all these different places. I, I saw people really step up and, and I liked the way I used to turn on the TV to look at them do this like parade every night from the providers that left like New York city, like at seven o'clock when the shift changed, they were like, everyone would like honk their horns and scream and clap as the people left out. Uh, I think that, you know, that kept the morale up, but I do think it was very hard for people because you saw it was so much death, so much hurt because you were dealing with these things in your own families and then going to work as well. So, you know, I can't speak from a personal standpoint, but I can speak from just being a colleague and and watching and hearing my my um, friends and, you know, fellow PAs and docs talk about it and share their experiences. But I, I have to admit my privilege in that regarding that I didn't have to practice. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think that's important that you acknowledge your privilege. I yeah. think more people should do it, right? Yeah. When you see it, 
um, admit to it. Yeah. But but you are a healthcare professional. Yes. So and I'm, and I'm sure you know um you you know many healthcare professionals. Yes. Is there something that we can or could have done to support healthcare workers better, and do you think we did enough to support them? Um, I think I think I never say we do enough, but I think the support was there. Um, I think as a country, we could have done more. Uh, we could have listened mm-hmm. to, you know public health, we could have watched the public health trends, we could have listened to those who have the expertise around viral outbreaks and 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 been a little bit in front of this because mm-hmm. um, sadly I think that this virus has been politicized which it shouldn't, health should never be politicized but it is, I mean we know that it is, health is politicized and people hold health hostage as a part of political agendas. And that I don't I don't think that matters what party you're in. I think people hold health hostage. I think that that was the what we could have done, but it's out of our control. I think if our higher ups could have done, it's just align better around how we're going to handle this, um, come up with uh, guidelines that we agreed on um, and and really push this um, public health initiative out there because I think that our downfall is because what, what people believed about the virus or, or different values that they held, it put a lot of people in danger and helped with the spread and led to a lot of deaths. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, you're right. As, as a country, there's a lot of people that the, the previous administration, um, not to, you know, avoid getting political, but the previous administration could have taken this pandemic a lot more serious than it did. And I'm sure they had the reasons for not. And that's not for me to say, but I'm sure they had the reasons. Right. Uh, but we have but we have vaccines now. Have uh, ho- vaccines. hopefully, you know, people will weigh the risk versus um, the benefit versus the risk. Um, do what's best for you. However, you know, um, we do. I just want to make sure to let you know we have <laughs> vaccines. We have good stock of vaccines, and I think it should be something you definitely consider for your health and the health of others too. But no way I can make you do what you know something you don't want to do. But just know that we do have resources available now. And well, I'm glad you brought that up because that that was what my next um, question. You've taken the vaccine. Yes. Which one did you take? I did Moderna. Okay. I was just gonna take whatever they gave me, though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I did the same thing. I I went I went to go get, it and I was like, whatever you got to get. Yeah. I got Pfizer. Okay. Um. Let's talk about the, the vaccine a little bit. Okay. Um. I know we both. I know what you're gonna say, but but just for the sake of you know discussing it, and so people can hear the discussion, is the vaccine safe? Um. The the efficacy. Is is safe? So a lot of them, like think Moderna's like ninety four point five percent, Pfizer is ninety five percent. I think, uh, and I might be misspeaking here. The Johnson Johnson around sixty eight percent. So you, when you look at efficacy, is that means how how well it's going to work and how much how much protection you're going to get. So if we compare that to like the seasonal flu vaccine, that's anywhere from like fifty some to sixty some percent, and a lot of us get that right. Mm-hmm. Um, it is new. Um, it, it, it was um, pre-approved by FDA to, because of the, you know, the benefit versus the risk, like I said. Now, you know, as as it as more people um, uptake it, you might see side effects. You are going to see side effects. And one thing in medicine, if, if it happens once, we have to report it, you know. So um, a lot of a lot of what people are just really seeing, though, from the vaccine is, you know, just like a covid style response because your immune system is is jumping into overdrive to try to get rid of that because your body thinks you have COVID. Now, I think it's a little early to know what the long-term effects are because, I mean, we just start getting it, you know. So right. as we get more research uh, and more outcomes data, then we'll be able to speak more on that. But again, like I say, it's a very personal choice and you you have to do your own risk benefit analysis on your own personal one you know so me my thing was you know what my my parents are are older mm-hmm. I, I would like to see them one day you know um i, right. I am in healthcare. 
I want to protect myself and protect my patients. I want to protect my students. And, you know, I, and I want to protect basically again myself. Uh, and so I was just like, you know what? I'm going to do this. This is the best thing for me. I didn't let anyone else get in my ear, you know, one way or the other. You can tell me yes a thousand times. You can tell me no a thousand times. It really had to be my decision, you know. And so I have, you know, I have not pressured my parents into taking it. My dad did take it. My mom has not taken it. There are probably layers to why she hasn't as a black woman, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, and I respect those. But I also, you know, we, she masking up. She's basically isolating herself and she's washing her hands. You know, those sort of things. You still have to take precautions, even if you didn't take the, the vaccine. So I, I want people to know they still need to take take the proper precautions because you don't you don't want this. You don't want COVID. <laughs> you know, um my wife took um Moderna also mm-hmm. and my my side effects I took were very mild. Like I was tired and have I was a little achy. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I mean I was really concerned before I took it. But then at the end of the day I, that's all I had. I, I had maybe a a slight headache, right? Yeah. My wife, ooh, she went through it. Wow. When she took it. Yeah, so when she got over it, it only lasted like a day and a half. When she 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 was done, she was like, "If that's only a little bit of what people go through when they have COVID, she's like, I do not want COVID." Right. She was going through it. I I didn't. I was just like you. I took Moderna, but I didn't have many side effects either. I was tired. I got some good sleep. Um, one I think one time I had like a night sweat. I woke up kind of sweaty, and then I had like a achy achy leg or something. You know, it was nothing shot the second shot i was just really tired and then i had some injection site pain so yeah. i was one of the good lucky people too that i didn't have a lot of um big side effects to it but like you said it only lasts a day to a day and a half usually by the end of that second day people wake up and they're like oh okay i'm good now because it, it just it just as quick as it came on it leaves just as fast that's exactly what happened to my wife yeah. Exactly what to my wife. um yeah um i I know you, you said you haven't, and you're the healthcare professional, but I, I did encourage my family to, to, to take the vaccine. Yeah, no, I encourage them. I just can't make them. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, but I do have family members who they flat out told me they were not going to take it. Yeah. Like, they don't trust it, and they don't trust people who made it. Right. And they were like, I'm not taking that vaccine. Right. right. Um, yeah, so. and that's the conversation for our race talk whenever we have it, because that's a right. whole deeper conversation, too. About yeah, medical exactly. medical mistrust and distrust, and people have a right to have the distrust. I mean, oh, absolutely. History yeah. history proves it. History has proven. I mean, mm-hmm. like you said, I yeah. mean, I, the one everyone talks about is the Tuskegee experiment. Yeah, but also, um, I can't even think of her name right. Hen- now. Henrietta Lacks. Henrietta Lacks. Yes, they, yeah. How much they stole from her? And yeah. you, just, you just spoke about the origins of gynecology. Yeah. There's so much in medicine um, for people to be distrustful of, but. Yeah. Um, like you said, you said, you have to wait. You have to wait. Yeah. Right. Um, so, with the vaccine, do you think how much longer till your professional opinion, how much longer till uh, COVID is behind us? You know, honestly, I, I can't answer that. I, I, I'm of the belief that COVID is probably here to stay and it's probably going to be probably going to be like a, a seasonal thing. You know, I think they're looking now to seeing, you know, if we're going to do booster shots of the vaccine, just like you do a flu vaccine every yep. year. Um, you know, the SARS-CoV-2, that, it's not new. It's just a different strand. That's why it's novel, you know, and we had never really experienced it. So it was hitting us hard worldwide. Uh, a lot of these things, they're, they're usually not going to leave like you still have remnants of of other older epidemics that happened in the past you know um there are certain things with vaccinations you definitely can get rid of you know um like smallpox and things like that but we have to have a concerted kind of global uh approach to it but with this being viral the way it is mm-hmm. I, I i would be you know if i was a betting man i would say that it probably would it's probably going to be around, but yeah. you know I can't say that with certainty though. So everyone listening here, don't take that as fact. That is my professional opinion. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean you hit the nail right because like, that was going to be my next question. Like, if you think this, this is going to be like a, a a yearly shot that people have to get once they start getting it, um, and you hit it right on where I was going with it. Um, yeah, so.
years. So I, I tell I tell I tell this story a lot. So if I've told you before, or if somebody else who's listening to her before, I tell I remember being a kid in the early two thousands in high school, right? There were things scientists kept saying were were going to happen. They were talking about climate change. They're saying how these huge storms, flooding, mm-hmm. wildfires, things like that. They said those things are going to come. Those things came. Mm-hmm. The other thing I heard people saying, a pandemic is coming. We need to be prepared, right? Mm-hmm. They kept saying that. So in in medicine, what's the next thing that we should be? Is it a, is it another pandemic? Is there something else that we need to be on our toes about? You know what? You never know. I just think say that we just have to be uh, keep our pulse on public health. Uh, mm-hmm. Look at you know disease reporting data. Follow the science, believe the science, believe those that we put in charge to, to do the work and, and follow the recommendations. You know, um, people, they do a lot of surveillance and disease tracking, like I said. And um, when we're on the brink and on the verge of things that they let us know, you know, I can't say directly for sure. But if we keep on living, like my grandma said, you keep, just keep on living. You're going to experience something. It comes probably every generation. I'm sure uh, what, at the turn of the century, we have the Spanish flu. Uh, pandemic, right? Before that, people had they had the bubonic plague and you know stuff like that. So it's it's gonna come, like you keep on living. But I think we just the the takeaway is that we have to listen to science, and we have to some kind of way find it in our hearts to trust the science, so that you know we can stay healthy and have healthy communities too. It's not just about us; it's about our community as well. Uh huh. Uh yeah, no, you're absolutely right. <clears throat> community, the, the older I get, the more I realize how much community is important for mm-hmm. everybody's well-being, whether, whether it's health, mental, you know, just, you know, quality of living. Community is, is really important to yeah. the quality of life that people have. I agree. I, I learned it as I got older. My last question. Okay. I ask this question um, to every guest. What is the title of your autobiography? My autobiography. Oh, that's a good one. You know, I, I actually, when I was a kid, so I'm, I'm a literary nerd, and I always had said that I was going to write my autobiography. And it, it was because I used to watch, like, the Disney Channel and all that stuff. I remember my little book I wrote about myself was called Dakin Through the Looking Glass. <laughs> Yeah, because like Alice through the looking glass. Mm-hmm. And, and I just felt like and I don't know, my little kid mind probably didn't didn't reflect on the way I will reflect on it now. But if you through the looking glass, you get to get a view from the inside and from the outside as your you know, your reflection. So, you know, anything that I share, I would I want people to get the wholeness of my story, the wholeness of that lived experience. Um, I even have I actually had started on a memoir. Um, maybe a couple of years ago, and I started um, video, t- um, not video, audio recording my mom asking about stories and things like that. And um, I, I, it's, with you bringing it up, that's something I'm going to revisit. I, 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 everyone has a story, and I think everyone's story is worth sharing. Uh, but oh, yeah, that, absolutely. You know, yeah. that's the whole premise of this podcast, that everybody's yeah. story is yeah. worth talking about. Um, the I would I would love to hear your stories because you are you are a very interesting person. Even like even when I first met you in college, you you know you're you're older than me just by a little bit. But yeah. like I was like, yeah, you're just you're an interesting person. <laughs> that's that's that's, I, that's a I, nice I, way of saying it. <laughs> no, just like, <laughs> no, I I I am I walk to the beat of my own drum. That's for sure. I, I I am what some would probably describe as eccentric in a way, not in my dress, not in my actions, but kind of in my thought and mm-hmm. kind of how I maneuver and operate. And I, and you know what? I had to I have to lean into that. I, I actually leaned out of it over the last few years and moving to Seattle. 
and if anyone's familiar with Seattle, I, my my eccentricity, my walking to the beat of my own drum is is normal here, and I've actually leaned back into into that actually. You know, the Pacific Northwest because it's where I live. I live in Olympia, which is mm-hmm. like an hour south of you, and like the Pacific Northwest, I it's first of all, it's very white. It is. Um, I wish more black people lived here and could experience the certain things about it. Not just like the state, especially coming from the South, the type of culture that's here is very different from the type of culture that's down there. Mm-hmm. But also like just the, the state itself, like the geography of it, it's, it's very beautiful. No, it is. It is. I, I just, I love it up here. Um, and I think that, you know, as the years pass, we are going to have more diversity, more black and brown people, more religious diverse, however, gender diverse, because all these corporations that are here, they, like, I know for a fact that Microsoft and Amazon, you know, really go and recruit um, people from underrepresented minorities. And I, you know, before COVID, I was meeting so many new people coming from the South and different places that were moving up here because of opportunities and big tech and, you know, some of the things up here. So I, I, you know, like I say, it's going to come, but if you if you look at the demographics, I I do think like if we look into just black or African American, it's like seven percent in Seattle, I think. Oh, in Seattle, yeah. yeah. State, I think it's yeah. like four. Yeah, like in Seattle, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. But so, it, it has also afforded me though to to not be around people that are like me too. You know, that's that's one thing about growth too. You learn from so many different people by being again uh, with different cultures, different ways of life, different things, different um, sexual orientation or gender identities, different religions and spiritual practices. Like this, really being up here has afforded me a glimpse into into so much that I was not. Um, from where we come from, not to say it doesn't exist, but we we exist in our in our pods, you know. Mm-hmm. And it, it just it just made you know opened up my pod and welcomed in some new people, or they welcome me in, and and I, I really enjoy that, and that just it, it drives my my passion really for you know diversity, equity, and inclusion because I see the beauty and I know the beauty and I've experienced the beauty firsthand that that goes with all that. Yeah. I you know you're you're absolutely right. Um, so the the last thing is a, a section that I am not just I guess can't came up with this. They call it the shameless self promotion. Let us know your social media. Let us know <laughs> um, some e- some organizations that you work with that you think are worthwhile. Some charities, um, something, just anything that you, you want to promote, promote it now. Okay. Well, I, I, I'm not a big self-promoter, but I'll give you my, my um, social media tags in case anyone who's listening might want to contact me and learn more about PA. Um, on Instagram, it's at Dathian, D-A-Y-T-H-E-O-N. Um, at twi- on Twitter, it's at Dathian, um, at D-A-Y-T-H-E-O-N. Um, on LinkedIn, just type in Dathian Sturgis. Uh, Sturgis is S-T-U-R-G-E-S. Um, I'm also on Facebook, Dathian David Sturgis. Um, I'm a member of Alpha Phi Alpha um, uh, Fraternity Incorporated. Uh, that's I've been a member for about 18 years now. So that's one of the big organizations that, that comes to mind. Um, and then I'm I'm also involved in a lot of our PA organizations as well. But I, I don't want to do a real big shameless probe. But I'm giving you my my contact information just in case anyone out there wants to connect and see how I can help them though. But I don't have anything to sell. I don't have any products. I just want to help you if you if you want help. All right, that sounds great, brother. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah, I, I appreciate you making the time for me because I know you're a busy person. I no, you. I enjoyed this conversation. Coming on the podcast, it, it, yeah. it it's great, and I can't wait for people to hear it. Yeah, I'm glad we got to catch up. Yes, absolutely. All right, nice, all right. We'll talk to you. Yep. Thank you. Bye. Hey guys, if you're interested in being a PA, check out the National Society of Black Physicians Assistants. Uh, it's an organization. Maybe you can learn more about it. Maybe you can find a mentor that can help you out. Um, their website is www.nsbpa.org. Again, if you're interested in being a PA or if you want to point somebody else in the direction, check out their website. Uh, last Sunday was Mother's Day. Um, this episode was really supposed to be 
at Mother's Day episode. Um, some scheduling things came up, so we had to move it around a little bit. So I'm going to have my Mother's Day episode, quote unquote, at a later time. But uh, I do want to just say uh, Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers in my life. Um, our lives would be much worse without you. Or, if, in fact, they wouldn't exist without you, to be completely honest. And so I just want to say that uh, I'm appreciative of all the mothers out there. And I hope you all had a very wonderful Mother's Day. I want to thank you for listening. Please subscribe, leave a five-star rating, and share this podcast on social media. It helps. Follow us on Twitter at Ordinary Show Pod. If you'd like to be a guest or suggest a guest, please email us at theordinaryshowpodcast at gmail.com. And as always, I'd like to remind you, there's nothing wrong with being ordinary. Some of the best people I know are ordinary.